0: news weather traffic
1: money politics big interviews and bold opinions it's what's happening right now this is mornings with Simi. you know when it comes to the food scene in metro vancouver it does feel like all we ever hear about is you know the city of vancouver oh michelin stars hot new restaurants it's always about vancouver but should it be apparently not Food and, food and Wine Magazine, which is one of my favorites, is out with a list of the up-and-coming food cities all over the world. And guess what's on there? Surrey. Yes, that's right. Surrey is getting recognition for all the amazing food that you can find there. And you know what? Local foodies, especially those that are based in Surrey, are very happy about that, including our next guest. Raj Tandy is a food blogger and editor of Pink Pinkjaw Living and joins us now. Raj, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Were you surprised to find out that Surrey was on this list of next great food cities? Well, I wouldn't
2: say surprised because I feel like I've been saying this for years, that, you know, it's a hidden gem. And I think people often overlook and don't realize the amazing global foods we have here, but I, I was certainly um a little bit vindicated. You know, I was really excited <laughs> when, uh, when a major outlet like Food and Wine magazine recognizes a city like that. It's, it's kind of a recognition that we needed.
1: I think so, too. So tell us, what is so great about the food culture in Surrey? What have people been missing?
2: Well... There is so many, first of all, global cuisines represented here. I think people don't always realize that there are so many pockets of food. I mean, obviously, when it comes to Indian food, it is exceptional. But even within Indian food, you know, we have so many regional restaurants. It represents the north, the south. And then we have all these micro cuisines that are popping up, like Nepali food, Bengali food. And when you sort of spread out a little bit from that, the some of the African cuisines, the, the Caribbean cuisines there is a little pocket of Syrian restaurants like there is just so many different influences represented that I think are often not
1: known unless you live in the city and that's the thing Surrey is so big right and if people haven't spent a lot of time there and they haven't you know if they don't know their way around it can seem quite intimidating to go and find some of these great places I think
2: well, and that's it. And often, you know, I think this happens that a little a pocket or an area becomes really well known and people don't know. Like, if you're not from the city, you don't know where to explore, which is why this concept of the Surrey Spice Trail is so amazing. You know, Discover Surrey has done all this work to create this list, which is, I think, what kind of kicked off all this attention and this conversation is that we have all these neighborhoods and we have all these restaurants and people need to come and eat here.
1: I should mention that to people then. So this spice trail that you talked about is actually listed in food and wine magazine, and it's part of the discover surrey, uh, website. So you can find it by going to discover surrey, com. They've got the spice trail on there. What are some of your favorites, Raj?
2: Okay. There's like so many places that I love, but, um, right off the bat, I would say like Chacha's Restaurant is a place that I I think they do these amazing things that are done nowhere else. They do a rumali roti, which is like the thinnest bread you're ever going to have and just so delicious. Um, I'm also a really big fan of Dragon Walk, which is Indo-Chinese. I think Indo-Chinese is this great little um, micro-cuisine that people don't always realize is here. By the way, um,
1: that that will blow a lot of people's minds because I've talked to people about this over the years. I first discovered this... 15, almost 20 years ago, and it blew my mind at the time, but Indian-style Chinese food is phenomenal.
2: It's amazing, and if you go into the restaurants and you actually talk to the restaurant owners and chefs, they're so proud of their cuisine because, I mean, these are families that left China, settled in Calcutta, and then they brought their unique food cuisine here. So, you know, another thing that I think is really lovely about coming to Surrey to visit the restaurants is, yes, you know, a lot of the times they're mom and pop shops. They're more of a homey experience, but what you're getting is truly very authentic and you can learn so much and learn so many stories and connect with people in a way that you sometimes can't when you're in a big, fancy restaurant.
1: Okay. So you've listed cha-chas, which is, um, and I'll, I'll have this whole list for people too. And a reminder at the end there, um, Dragon Walk, which sounds, I'm putting these on my list, by the way, Raj, as you're talking yeah, about them. Yeah. What are some of the other ones?
2: Okay, so I I love this place called the Syrian Gourmet. I think they're new to the spice trail. They might be being added soon, but they make the most amazing desserts. So I would definitely um, give that a whirl. Um, Another place to try is Clove. Clove does the most amazing, um, cocktails. I know 6am, but you know, it's like a really yeah, unique, uh, experience. Uh, Cove is a really amazing restaurant too. I'm always on the spot. I'm like, there's so many that I want to, uh, always talk about. Oh, I would also definitely, um, say Kerala village. They do the best dosas like Kerala village. Sorry. They do the best dosas. So there are so many uh, restaurants on the list from, uh, Oh, wait, hang on one more. One last one. Spices of Nepal, they do these most amazing momos and soups. So another one that I think I really think momos are little steamed dumplings, which I think are this beautiful food that every culture has a steamed dumpling.
1: Like everybody's got one. Um, definitely, definitely on my must list. Well, first of all, they're all delicious. I don't care what culture it is that has a dumpling. If there's a dumpling, I'm eating it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So- that, that's that. That's the thing about all these different places, though, Raj. Do you think it was just like a natural progression? You've got all these different people settling in Surrey, and this is kind of what happens as a result.
2: I think so. I think that, you know, there's been so much immigration recently in the the last, I'm going to take a guess, of five to seven years, it feels like to me. It could have been longer. But now there is all these little, like, pockets of immigration and, and different cultures and people from different parts of the world coming in, and i think. In many ways, like Surrey was the perfect place for that because there's space to spread out. Um, you know, there was affordable options for people to set up restaurants. You know, maybe not as affordable as if you were in the city, and then the, well, we are a city too. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Very up, Before yes. you're in Vancouver downtown, but um, you know, all these uh, all these different factors came together, and also because a lot of times, you know, immigrants. They create opportunities to sell the food because it's what they know. You know, it's what they know. So they are sustaining themselves by selling these very like homemade, home-cooked foods. And it's turned into this beautiful little opportunity for someone to come to Surrey and try so many different things that you won't get anywhere else unless... You know, there's so many restaurants that I've been to on the spice trail where people have said to me, oh, this is my mom's restaurant or my mom is cooking in the back or my grandma taught me this. Right. So you won't get that kind of culture of food everywhere. I think Surrey has just really uniquely got that going on.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like that. So would you tell people, hey, you know what, it's time to maybe cross the bridge, go over there, check some stuff out.
2: I would 100% say that. I would also say if you haven't been to Surrey in several years, which I know there are people listening who are going to say that, it is very different now. Definitely come check it out. Look at the Spice Trail. Plan your list and give it a try. Like there is so much amazing food here that people can give. Come in, they can try things that you can't try elsewhere.
1: Fantastic. Well, you know what? I've made my list even while talking to you. So, Raj, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you for having me. That is Raj Tandi. Raj is a food blogger and founder and editor of Pink Cha Living. Uh, you can find that online, her blog there, all about food. And so the spice trail that we were just talking about was featured in Food and Wine Magazine. That is one of North America's premier kind of food publications. It's a great magazine. And they picked Surrey as one of their up and coming. Uh, you know, food cities. This is like a place to go and check out all these different places. So, if you would like to find out the restaurants that are on the Spice Trail, go to discoversurreybc.com and you can get the whole list there. But some of the ones that Raj mentioned that she loves are Chachas Tandoor and Grill. She mentioned Dragon Walk. Clove. I saw also on the spice trail they had you know restaurants listed like Afghan Kitchen, The Taste of Africa. It just sounds amazing, and I am definitely going to check them out. So good on all those hardworking foodies out there in Surrey making that happen. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's time for our weekly check-in with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent on things that have been going on in the United States. And honestly, Reggie, I don't even know where to start this week.
3: I mean, look, there's a lot of things that we can talk about, but we could talk about the most recent one and that being um, uh, what is becoming a continued problem for the Biden administration when it has to do with immigration because it ties in Republicans, Democrats, Joe Biden and Donald Trump.
1: Okay, let's start with that one. So Title 42. (laughs) What is that and what is going on?
3: So look, Title 42 was put in place by Donald Trump during the pandemic as a way to kind of curb asylum uh, seekers from gaining access to the United States, and this was done under the guise of, there's a public health crisis and we need to protect the American population. It was incredibly controversial, and it turned back more than 2 million people that were seeking asylum. Uh, it was carried over into the Biden administration, and then it officially was rolled back at 11.59 last night, uh, kind of Mexico time, uh, and ultimately... What that did was end this procedure and it allowed for, you know, more migrants to potentially get in while at the same time facing a new challenge because the administration realized that they may be flooded with migrant claims. So they put new rules in place that could potentially turn back even more people trying to gain access to the United States. You know, have the administration facing challenges from the ACLU, some pushback from progressive Democrats, but still pushback from Republicans as well
1: okay and so they've sent like troops and everything to the border too haven't they
3: Yeah, there are. uh, National Guard is patrolling uh, the border. The uh, active duty troops from the military are assisting with asylum claims because there is a concern here that we could see thousands upon thousands of people attempting to cross the United States border every single day for the next several weeks. This was, you know, a number that exceeded 10,000 per days in the run up to the rollback uh, of Title 42. The Department of Homeland Security says that if people do not seek asylum before they either enter Mexico or get to the U.S. border, that they They will be turned back, and they're going to use what's known as Title 8 to start deporting people back to the country that they came from. This is going to impact people from a multitude of countries, and there is some general concern here that if more migrants aren't allowed into the United States, that this could have an impact on the economy, because there are so many jobs, especially in parts of the southern United States, that are reliant on seasonal workers who can't get into the country.
1: So meanwhile, all these people are showing up here because they think that, oh, the rules are ending. We can now get in. And that is not the case.
3: No, the rules are the rules ended for Title 42. But as we heard from the Department of Homeland Security secretary yesterday say the borders are not open, they are going to be putting additional measures in place that if you cross into the United States, if you have not sought asylum, either before you left or from the first country that you landed in, you'll be turned back and then barred access for five years. Now at the same time, There are people who have already pre-crossed and they're already in, you know, border towns like El Paso. They are, you know, under this new program being allowed to surrender themselves and then be released pending a court date. That has now found itself before a Trump-appointed judge in Florida to try and block that order the Department of Justice is going to appeal. So this is going to become a messy immigration battle now for this administration.
1: Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, Let's get on to the Donald Trump stories, plural. So we've got the Donald Trump verdict and then we've got the Donald Trump CNN town hall.
3: I mean, and both of them kind of tied in with each other. That town hall, I mean, there are questions as to what CNN was ultimately trying to do here, especially with new reporting that's come out over the last 12-ish hours that said that the group that was in the room who were very pro-Trump, they were mostly Republican or leaning Republican, they weren't allowed to boo Donald Trump per the floor director. But they were allowed to applaud him and cheer him on. And here you had Donald Trump within seconds making, you know, these bogus claims going back to 2020 about a rigged election that he believes that he won. But at the same time, less than a day after that verdict came out that he's now appealing started to go after and criticize and make defamatory comments against E. Jean Carroll, where this could potentially lead to another lawsuit. And this is where some of the concern is within the Republican party and named Republican candidates uh, who say, look, the baggage that he's carrying with him is simply too much. But if you take a look and read that room that he was in, the base is still eating this up.
1: So how was the crowd chosen? I've heard a lot of people ask that question. Do we know?
3: Well, I, we, it's, it's unclear how they were exactly chosen. We just know that this was a room full of Republicans and people who identify as potentially leaning towards Republicans. And whether or not this was kind of a stipulation that Donald Trump would only sit down with CNN if it was going to be a friendly room uh, or something else, the network is facing harsh criticism, not only from within but it has faced kind of a wrath of of negative stories over the last 24 hours from a wide you know section of the media with the exception of the far right parts of the landscape uh saying that this essentially went back to what happened in 2015 and 16 where donald trump was given you know a free platform for more than an hour to spew things that you know ultimately fomented in an insurrection at the u.s capitol uh and while fact-checking was done It's hard to fact check in real time everything the president is saying when he constantly steps on you and and pushes you out of the way. This, This was a moment for CNN and they're living through it right now.
1: Yeah, it sounds like they're in damage control mode.
3: Absolutely, they are. Look, Chris Licht, the head of CNN, is saying uh, that this was what journalism is, that he was trying to equate this to being, uh, you know, a moment that news, you know, had to be put out to the population. But at the same time, CNN is also finding itself under scrutiny for saying, well, look, we're kind of manufacturing news here because most of what was said on the stage was by a former president who has been impeached and who has repeatedly lied and lied again at, you know, kind of nauseam here. And here we are now trying to clean up the words that Donald Trump said and and the reason he was able to say those things is because we gave him the platform to say those
1: things okay and the one more story i wanted to get to was the george santos story this is the probably the, the best known congress person outside of the united states
3: yeah, I mean, look, and and this was a, a big deal. He came out, you know, vehemently denying the charges that were against him of money laundering and wire fraud and lying to Congress about his income, about his wealth, about what he did with his campaign finances, with accusations that he collected them and then ultimately spent it on himself and, and you know, lavish lifestyle and expensive clothing. He came out and used words that are very familiar within the Republican Party to say that this was A witch hunt and that people are simply going after him and he's not sure where the government you know got their information from this is an embattled congressman four months in the problem here is what do republicans do are they going to try to censure him are they going to potentially expel him which if they do would open a by-election and potentially lead to a pickup for democrats and shrink the lead that kevin mccarthy has so the party has found themselves in a really tough spot right now They're losing support within the base, at least in his riding. And they're also concerned that that could lead to a Democratic pickup, all because of one man who ultimately found his way into Congress by lying to his constituents.
1: Oh, man, that case is crazy. Reggie, thank you so much for all that. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about the future of football at Simon Fraser University. What is it? Because more than a month ago, the varsity program was abruptly cancelled. And since that time, a lot of us have been trying to find out why and have been trying to advocate for the student-athletes who feel that they have been cut adrift. And they kind of have, haven't they? I mean, they made a commitment to SFU, a school that has sent more players to the CFL than any other in Canada but they feel SFU left them out of the decision-making process and then surprised them by cancelling the program altogether. So this has been an issue before BC Supreme Court. Some of those student-athletes were trying to go to court to get an injunction to reinstate the program. Well, yesterday, that application was denied, but that doesn't mean this issue is going away. There are a lot of questions right now, so we're very pleased that Joy Johnson, the president of Simon Fraser University, is joining us to sort through all of that. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Simi. It's just a pleasure to talk to you today. What is the future of varsity football at SFU?
0: Well, that's the big question, Simi. And um, that's why we have hired um, Bob Copeland um, to work as an independent advisor to try and find a path forward for varsity football at SFU. I will say it was very clear that we did not have a future in NCAA football. Um, the Lone Star Conference had told us we had no future there and there were no other conferences that were reasonable for us to play in. And so the question is, can we find a conference to play in? Can we find a league? And there's a lot of work to do to get to that point. Um, and so that's what Bob's going to do. He's the, what we want to have is a sustainable, competitive football program. And we're going to work with our SFU student-athletes, our football alumni, and our community and try to find a path forward.
1: How do you feel about how this was handled? Because certainly the school has faced a lot of backlash here.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I do believe to me that it was the right decision. Um, uh, we did not have a future and, uh, in the NCAA and needed to make a decision. And it is never a good time. But I also want to say I certainly appreciate how difficult, stressful and heartbreaking this has been for our, our football student-athletes. And we have been uh, marshalling support for them in every way we can. We're continuing their scholarships um, so that they can stay at SFU. We're looking, if they choose to transfer, to assist them with that. Uh, So we're trying to wrap supports around them. And, you know, I appreciate with the court case, things have been particularly difficult, but we are looking forward to finding a path forward at this time.
1: When you say honouring their scholarships, is that for the full four years? Or uh, what I had heard was it was Uh, just for the next year?
0: No, absolutely. We are going to see them to the end of their program. Uh, that's a commitment we've made to our athletes, and it's one that we're going to continue to honour.
1: You, do you think we, perhaps the administration underestimated how people feel about the football program?
0: Well, you know, uh, Simia, it's it It's true. I think that um, the, the groundswell has been quite significant. And, you know, to be frank, um, it has surprised me in some way in that we haven't seen that support, um, you know, in the stands. Um, our football um, stands have been empty, um, basically, as our students have played over the past couple of years. And so what I'm encouraged about is that people are saying they want football at SFU. Um, and I am going to be counting on the community now to support this program, um, to show up, support the team, um, because that is how you have a competitive football program, is to have the community um, you know, stand up for it. So in some ways, that that's been part of the good news here.
1: Right. Yeah, because how much of that was actually on the school, though, right? Because the team needs to be promoted. Nobody knew the team was in trouble. They perhaps would have shown their support before. And and there was a pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The pandemic has been part of the story. But I I think that um, from the very beginning... Um, uh, football playing football in the United States um, in the NCAA program is 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 it's a little bit like David and Goliath sometimes because of the resources that um, American universities pour into their football programs. So um, um, absolutely, I think that um, there is, there's a lot of work to be done here to think about how we can have a sustainable football program. It is our deep hope that we will be able to return to Canada and play football in Canada. And in part, the advantage of that is people know Canadian um, um, university teams and understand those dynamics much more than they do the, some of the universities that we've been playing in the United States.
1: And so what do you say then to people in the kind of larger SFU community, myself included, I'm an alum, who felt like this the school really kind of had a black eye with all of this here?
4: Yeah, I, I
0: will say um, um, that we are um, committed to our student-athletes. We're finding a way forward. I also think there was a lot of misinformation floating around out there. And unfortunately, we weren't in a position to comment on what was happening when the matter was before the for the courts and so that's why i'm really happy to be speaking to you today Simi. because i just want to um, emphasize that what we closed down was our ncaa football program there wasn't a path forward and we need to find a different path and right now the bylaws in canada with youth sports and with canada west suggest that you know that we are not eligible to play so there's a lot of work to be done to find a conference to play in we either need to see bylaws changes we need or we need to seek an exemption so that we can play in canada and that's 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 a lot of work. And yeah. um, if we are going to return to Canada as well, we've got an American sized field. We need to think about a field. There's a lot of dynamics that have to be thought through.
1: Right. I guess the question that people had was, were any of those efforts made, though, before things were canceled? Did anybody go and say we need an exemption? We need help.
0: Yeah. So conversations did take place. Um, um, and in those conversations, the bylaws were reinforced and, and it was our position Um, when we made the decision um, that there was no future um, conference for us to play and no league to play in. But since that time, um, we have received, um, and some in part through the advocacy of people who are keen on SFU football, um, some signals that those doors might not be as closed as we thought they were. And so it's time to take a look at that, to figure out how we can move forward and to, you know, really support this this effort and, and to get, Like, I I think at this point, we need to work together. We need, uh, you know, the university really does want to work with our SFU football alumni, our students, and try to find a path forward.
1: I hope so. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. So we just heard some potentially positive words from Joy Johnson, who's the president of Simon Fraser University, when it comes to dealing with bringing back varsity football and that whole program. So there is a process in place. They have picked somebody to be their advisor, and they've also been talking to the people who have a vested interest in this. Now, Mark Bailey is with us now, president of the SFU Football Alumni Society, to talk more about this. Mark, thanks for being here.
5: Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity. It's greatly appreciate it.
1: Well, tell me, are you feeling positive after the last, you know, 48 hours?
5: Certainly feeling positive and optimistic. uh, Yet, uh, however, uh, still some things that need to be uh, dealt with, uh, you know, with immense amount of urgency. So uh, while we greatly appreciate, uh, you know, the opportunity to engage with President Johnson at the university and the steps in which they're able and willing to uh, take to have the program likely reinstated, uh, you know, we still need to address the things that are really at, uh, at hand here, and that's the student-athletes right now that are on the, on the current roster as well as the staff.
1: Right, because what we heard, and I asked, you know, the president about that specifically, is like honoring the scholarships for the full program, not just for next year, and she said they would.
5: Absolutely, and the key thing with, uh, you know, President Johnson and her messaging is sustainability of the program, and for sustainability to be accomplished, uh, you know, we need a reinstatement. And uh, we've got some action items in which that we voiced and uh, will continue to voice, uh, you know, obviously in a respectful manner. But, you know, our first thing that we need to see is, is the locker room reopen to the student athletes so they can get back in there and do what they, they set out to do in the first place. Uh, the, the urgency of time is associated with these players and families been waiting approximately 40 days and, you know, their lives can't wait any longer. And, you know, we're going to lose a lot of our, our best athletes uh, to other programs. And when I reference sustainability, if, if that is going to transpire, um, you know, they're going to be in a, a much more difficult uh, situation to, to have the program, uh, you know, find the sustainability in what she speaks to.
1: Right. What did you think about that? Some of the things she talked about was that they're going to need to see the support, that she suggested that the program wasn't as supported and, and, and perhaps some of all, all of this outcry was a bit of a surprise.
5: Well, you know, I think there's, a, there's, there's definitely some, some things in which that we could speak to from our perspective with supports, you know, coming from the university. Uh, But if she's speaking to to that, I think what she's referencing essentially is the amount of engagement and community that have now kind of obviously uh, come through through this process. And I believe what she's asking or referencing is is sustainability with regards to retention and keeping all of the other or or new key stakeholders involved as well as invested. So, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, an immense amount of support from Mr. Mark Dorman with the BC Lions. Uh, you know, with his financial contribution, you know, and then as well, like spotlights from other major entities, you know, whether it's been, you know, political and or uh, professional organizations. So I believe what she's really suggesting is that we continue to build off of that. And we're aligned with that, of course, but uh, there's a lot of work to be done to to make sure that uh, we we have all those things continuously in place.
1: Okay. And so what are the next steps? Like, well, they've got a new advisor in place, they named that advisor. What did you think about that?
5: Well, definitely, uh, you know, I I think that they've done their due diligence with regards to making sure there's somebody externally, uh, you know, hired, and it's to their benefit. However, I do believe there's also other ways about going about the process. You know, it's uh, quite an expensive uh, hire to be had, and, you know, it'd be be great to see, you know, maybe another route, but I'm I'm not here to, to obviously... Um, you know, argue the process in which they're going about it. It's more of us working and collaborating and engaging with the university and being a part of the process in which they've they've started. Uh, You know, Mr. Uh, Copeland here with the McLaren Global Sports Group, I believe is, you know, has quite an extensive uh, background and is accredited. And we've already had engagement uh, with that gentleman already by email. And we look to work with him, you know, immediately next week. Uh, to get the things in place. But, you know, like our, our action item right now, like I mentioned already is, is the locker room. And you know, like, when I say, um, urgency, like I'm talking today, like we need to see the locker room open and we need to see these student athletes back there. Uh, but you know, we're, we're here to collaborate and, and work through the process with, with the university to, to find the best outcome for the student athletes.
1: Is it possible? Do you think Mark that, okay, a year from now, this program could be restarted? <sighs>
5: It's possible that that could be the scenario. We're we're definitely not um, trying to, I guess you say, uh, put put that out on our on our uh, our agenda. Our agenda's immediate thing is to get the student athletes there and and pursue an exhibition schedule for this year. And as well, you know, we've we've alluded to earlier that we've provided the university with nine games for this year. They very well may assess things and say those those are not realistic. You know, we, we only see you know six of those games being realistic and. By all means, that that's fair, too. But, you know, something at that point is better than nothing. A lot of these student-athletes are not going to find other places to play, you know, and, and make a unilateral move to, to go find a, a great education somewhere, you know, like SFU, and still play competitive uh, university football.
1: Okay, so the next steps here, then, you say get the gym open for some of these players. Has it been, it must be such a waiting game for them, right? Like, they don't know, should they move on? Should they stay?
5: Yeah, and you know, like we we've been engaged with the student athletes, you know, consistently throughout the whole process, and they've been very, very mature, and they've been very patient, and the families as well. And you know, we're doing our due diligence as well to to meet with them and give them the support that they need. We had a call last night with with the entire team, with our alumni group. You know, we've got ninety people on the call, and to hear some of the things in which I'm hearing is quite concerning and upsetting, and you know, it's hard not to be uh you know henri or 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 just you know obviously having an immense amount of empathy, but uh yeah, it's been a long waiting game, and you know they're they're putting their lives on hold, so that it's it's necessary that we get them back to where they were
1: all right, so still lots more to come on that mark thanks for keeping us up to date
5: no, thank you for the opportunity, greatly appreciate it.
1: This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm going to knock wood right now because I was about to say the Whitecaps are on a bit of a roll. But I also know that our coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, Fanny Sartini, is just as superstitious as I am. So let's find out how he's feeling. Good morning, coach.
6: Good morning. Uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, you can say we're on a
1: roll. Like, you are on a roll.
6: Yeah, we we have, a lot, we have a lot of other superstitions, so we, we can say that. <laughs> okay,
1: all right. I'm going to say it then because those are two really great games and you were worried last week about the scoring. Well, certainly the scoring came out of that slump, didn't it?
6: Yeah, 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 yeah. In two games, we scored seven goals. So the, uh, we, we, we kept playing very well, but this time we also finalized the chances. So, yeah, we are I'm very happy. So hopefully we can continue tomorrow in Portland too.
1: Yeah, tell me about this. Tell me about the next match.
6: Well, yeah, it's uh, against one of our, I would say, regional rival, uh, so the Portland Timbers, so we go there. It's uh, uh, it's a team that uh, we already, we, we beat them when they came to Vancouver like a month ago, but they are in a much better shape now. They won a couple of games, uh, they got some players back, so it's going to be hard. It's a... It's a good team, and the environment in Portland is always very hot with a lot of fans. That uh, it's gonna be a difficult game, but we can make it for sure.
1: Right, because there's only two points that separate you from Portland. You're two points ahead of them, right?
6: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So good opportunity. Yeah, you can see the like uh, every time that we play someone who's behind us, since we are. Uh, in a playoff position every time that we play someone who's behind us is a chance to put some more distance between us and them and uh, consolidate this playoff position so it's a it's a I would say it's a good opportunity to go there and uh, try to I would say make these three points because that would put us uh, uh in a in a really 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 good uh uh good position in the standings
1: okay and what do you think was the difference here because we were talking about the scoring slump and then he broke out seven goals last two games yeah. what do you think made the difference
6: you know i don't know <laughs> it's, uh, it's, wait a minute you're the coach uh,
1: what do you mean you don't know <laughs> i know
6: yeah well you know it's uh we we didn't do anything i would say um uh crazily differently in the in the in last week i think that uh we just kept playing very well, like we were we were doing. We were, I would say, convinced that uh, the more chances you have, uh, sooner or later, the more goals you're gonna you're gonna score. Uh, I think that what we had more probably we uh, we had more belief, uh, uh, I would say, from the player in doing those uh, runs inside the box. So uh, uh, receiving the ball and like uh, a couple of goals that we scored in the last uh, two games was like. Uh, Shot bounce, and then we we scored the second bounce something that didn't happen before, so probably I would say the belief and the and the will to arrive there and scoring goals was probably a little little more than than before, and hopefully it's going to stay there
1: yeah, hopefully it is going to stay there. Listen, good luck tomorrow
6: fantastic. Thank you so much.
1: That is Vanny Saratini, coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. They're playing Portland tomorrow night. Remember, you can catch all Vancouver Whitecaps games on our sister station, AM 730. And I would also like to mention here if you've been thinking about going to a Whitecaps game, the best day to buy tickets is actually coming up. So Monday, May 15th is the save the fees day for the Vancouver Whitecaps where they're essentially helping you to buy tickets at a pretty good discount. So if you're thinking about going, and listen, they are a playoff position right now. So go and check out the Whitecaps. Buy your tickets on Monday for Save the Fees Day. Just check it out at whitecapsfc.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now to introduce you to another extraordinary British Columbian. I love this series. I'm learning so much. This time it's about someone with a job so unique that experts all over the world look to him in Surrey to help them out. I mean, after all, how easy can it be to find someone who is a reconstructive craniofascial surgeon and microsurgeon? Uh, he literally reconstructs new faces for people. Came from Sloan Kettering and Harvard Medical School. He was courted by facilities all over the world, but he's made his home right here. And we want to know why and find out all about his work. So Dr. Iman Ratanchi is with us now, a reconstructive microsurgeon, craniofascial reconstruction surgeon at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.
4: Good morning. It's great to be with you.
1: Can you tell us about your work? Like, what do you do exactly?
4: Yeah, so aside from uh, general uh, plastic surgery and reconstructive services, um, my subspecialty interest is in, in reconstructive microsurgery. Uh, and what that means is um, often for larger uh, uh, defects, whether they be from cancer or, or trauma or injury we transplant tissues from one part of the body and and move them elsewhere and in doing so hopefully uh, help uh, um, uh, restore quality of life and function for that individual and the second hat I wear is as a craniofacial uh, surgeon and so for especially a lot of traumatic injuries or sometimes cancers um, we, we have to reconstruct the face or facial skeleton so both of those areas are big parts of my practice
1: okay how many people do this work uh, across, If you look at each uh, one, there's
4: there's a small number of us in British Columbia, and I think in terms of people who uh, do microsurgery, I think we're probably less than, less than 10, if that, in, in British Columbia. Um, craniofacial surgery-wise, I think it's probably a little bit smaller than that, and I think largely that's a function of where, where those types of cases come from. Um, worldwide, it, it's a very small community. Uh, when we look at microsurgery, it, it used to be very small, and I think uh, you know it's probably less than a, a couple thousand of us across the planet that do this.
1: Okay, that's pretty impressive. You could have gone anywhere, Dr. Ratanchi, but you you chose to come home to Surrey and have your practice here. Why is that?
4: Well, I, I grew up in Vancouver, in fact, Richmond specifically my my parents live in Surrey, and um, you know I think the opportunity for anyone to uh, you know after being away for so long to come home is is quite precious, so I think that was certainly a motivator and I think beyond that, you know to come back and, and provide a, a service to the community that uh, has certainly given me so much uh, adds extra meaning so that, that those are probably the two big reasons
1: and What do you think people don 't understand I know there's a lot of concern these days about the state of our health care system but What do you think people don't understand, especially when it comes to treating cancer and and helping people through that?
4: It's a great question. I mean, I think uh, across the the, the spectrum, whether it's my field or anybody else's, I think we just, you know, we're a growing population. We need more of us. I think that's just not physicians, but that's nurses and other care providers as well. Um, But I think when it comes to cancer, um, reconstruction is an important part of that, especially for more severe cases. Breast cancer is a great example. Um, Historically, a lot of the reconstruction was restricted, maybe just centrally in Vancouver. We just, didn't have the plastic surgeons in the community. And certainly as we train more specialists, we got more specialists in the community, we were able to offer more specialized care. That's now an option. And if you look in Surrey, um, almost every uh, woman who comes in for breast cancer, for example, is at least offered reconstruction, which is a very, very important milestone. If you go beyond our borders, that may not be the case. And so certainly we have a lot of work to do in terms of disseminating that access. But I think even beyond that, when you look at people who potentially uh, may have an unsuccessful outcome with those types of strategies that we use, that's where microsurgery comes in. Or, say, somebody who uh, has a a major limb injury and maybe had to be transferred to Vancouver, now they can access that care a little bit more in their backyard.
1: Yeah, How much is care, cancer care in particular, improving in Surrey? Because I know for a long time it was like you had to get in the car, you had to come to Vancouver, but what's it like now?
4: it is it is really exceptional and uh, we're very fortunate i think especially since the opening of the Jim Pattison center in Surrey um that the, the breast health um service there in particular is 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 really unique um i i think that you know don't quote me on this but i i think that between <laughs> uh between Jim Pattison and and St Paul's i think they offer the the largest volume of uh, uh breast cancer care in the province which is a, an important thing to be able to do and it's it recognizes the population that's there But more importantly, beyond myself, um, you know, we have colleagues that do a very high volume of head and neck reconstruction, not only in plastic surgery, but but in ear, nose and throat surgery. So across the spectrum, that care is is quite advanced. I think we have room to grow, certainly, um, but um, it's progressed dramatically in the last one or two decades.
1: What drives you though? I mean, I'm just looking at all the things that you've worked on, right? Harvard Medical School, Sloan Kettering, all the places that you've worked, but what drives you to do more, go more, be more?
4: I had the good fortune of being mentored by some exceptional people, especially my plastic surgery training. Um, They're world class surgeons in and of themselves. And and I think I had the good fortune of probably being in the right place at the right time where, um, you know, plastic surgery was really growing in Manitoba, of all places. And I think it's one of the hot spots of plastic surgery and reconstruction in Canada. Um, But their enthusiasm for, providing these types of services is, is infectious and when you have good people train you that infectiousness uh, translates to you and um you know again i had the good fortune to train in, in some exceptional places um that motivates you further and, and ultimately you see how care is provided elsewhere around the world um and you want to be able to provide that in your own backyard
1: and now did your parents at ever any point say to you oh come on come home
4: <laughs> I think I think they didn't have to. It's, it's you know, I, one of the things that my family looked at is if, if we could come home and, you know, enjoy the good years that we have with our parents, I think any of your listeners would say that time is priceless. And uh, that was certainly a big motivator for sure.
1: All right. So what do you look ahead to? What are the some of the exciting things that you're working on that you think, you know, we're going to hear about this in the years ahead?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first is expanding the capacity of what we provide. And so um, what that involves is building the institutional memory. And I think we've really come a long ways. You know, when I started um, doing a big reconstructive surgery was, you know, it was a big production. It was, you know, anxiety provoking for all involved. And today we've been able to make something like that you know quite routine for all the care providers involved. And that's that's very, very important. I think beyond that, we have other areas that we're looking at uh, in terms of providing more sophisticated reconstruction uh, in limb salvage. Uh, there's a, a very interesting area in lymphatic reconstruction that certainly we're considering, uh, and we've made some significant progress in terms of infrastructure on thanks to donations to our foundation. Um, we have facial reanimation that we're looking at, and even beyond myself and my colleagues um, you know, we provide peripheral nerve reconstruction, um, among other things. So so the, there's a lot coming through the pipeline, which is really exciting.
1: I have to ask you, how do you even find out that this is something that you're good at? You know, like with all the specialties and the things that you do, did, did yeah. you have a passion for it? Do you think, oh, I'm good at this and I can do this? Or did you think I love doing this?
4: You know, I, I think what, what called me to probably this subspecialty is, is just It's one of the most sophisticated things we offer in plastic surgery is what we do in the facial realm and, again, what we do in microvascular reconstruction. And so I think that had, um, you know, kind of a general appeal to me. Um, I think beyond that, again, you look to your mentors and say, wow, you know, they they train you really well and, um, you know, they help you work through uh, and develop that technical skill set and knowledge base. And I think then you realize, you know what, I can do this. And, um, you know, it's sort of a lesson that uh, if you put your mind to anything, you, you can really accomplish good things. And if you have good supports to do that, that's most important.
1: And do you try to do that for up and coming students as well?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, a philosophy that's worked well for me that my mentors gave me and and I try to uh, pass on to um, the medical students and residents I train is if you can make that person um, better than maybe you were at the exact same stage, I think that bodes very well for, for the future of our field.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. And thank you for your work.
4: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: That is Dr. Imran Ratanchi, who's a reconstructive microsurgeon and craniofascial reconstruction surgeon at Surrey Memorial Hospital. He is an expert in his very special and unique field of work. And he chose, after Harvard Medical School, Sloan Kettering, you name it, being in demand everywhere, to come home to Surrey and work here because this is where his family was. And he's just one of the extraordinary British Columbians that we have been featuring on our series. And we'll have a few more people to introduce you to next week.